from handbag throwing and racing in heels to showing off your prowess with a hula hoop or not. Myanmar's Drag Queen Olympics are just one of the highlights of the country's biggest ever LGBT festival. A milestone for the community in a country where same-sex relations are still officially illegal. I'm really excited to bring you the upcoming interview with a very special guest. You'll hear him discussing all the great and courageous work that he's currently engaged in. And if you feel inspired to help him continue these efforts, please consider making a donation earmarked for his projects. Or you can give a general donation that will support the wider movement in Myanmar. Our ongoing support has been so very helpful and appreciated by those in the country who are struggling during these dark days. Simply go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today, or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. For now, let's hear from that guest himself. Some people don't know about LGBT people. You get people who are LGBT, but they don't know what that is. They don't understand. So that's why it's difficult for other people to understand as well. So I would say this is not just for LGBT community, this is for the whole country and uh, like acknowledging the equality and basic human rights. pleased to be joined here by Pie Pio Cho, uh, also known as Victor, here on Inside Myanmar podcast. He is speaking to us from deep in the jungle, as we'll get to later in terms of what he's doing there, how he's helping, but we'll first be examining where he came from and how he got there. So Pie Pio Cho, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Yeah, so you have had quite a journey. We're going to talk about where you are and what you're doing in a moment, but let's first find out where you came from. So in whatever detail you're comfortable, can you share a bit about your background and upbringing and uh, childhood? Okay, so let me introduce myself a bit. Uh, my name is Pio Jio, also known as Victor. Uh, I'm a 29 years old doctor from Myanmar. Uh, I'm half Chinese and half Korean. So if I were to talk about myself, I'll have to start from my childhood. Uh, I was born in a small town and my dad is a Buddhist and my mom is a Christian. So there was like always power struggles within the family, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to religions. And 
uh, I'm a gay. So I'm aware of myself being gay since I was young. And you know, both religions are not gay friendly. Because uh, Buddhism taught us being gay is a consequence of our evil doings in the past life. And Christianity taught us being gay is a sin. So in the earliest days of my life, uh, I kept ref refusing myself being gay. What's worse is my dad likes to use violence of my mom. He's not loyal. Uh, it's always him who cheated on her and yet he he was the one who always beaten my mom. So it's not not to say to come out of the closet to tell about my sexual orientation. I dare not accept the fact I am I'm gay. So the society I grew up was a bit homophobic. They see gay people as funny creatures, as things that deserve to be mocked. And even my dad and brothers used to make fun of gay people. Uh, it was totally okay to discriminate, to make fun of, and to insult gay people until recently in Myanmar. So I kept denying my existence. Uh, so I was lonely and a bit depressed. Uh, and my childhood was not that pleasant. And when I was 16, uh, after I finished high school, I went to the medical school. And it was not my choice. Actually, I wanted to be an artist. But um, my family chose it for me, so I went to medical school. and. I really suffered in the first few years of my university life because uh, medical school is not actually my passion. And on the other hand, I was struggling with my sexual orientations. So it's really hard. Uh, only after fourth year of my university life, I learned how to accept myself. I began to realize that I am not the problem. Uh, the people who think gay people are inferior and uh, they are sinners, that's a real problem. I began to realize that. So that's, uh, that's when I learned to embrace myself and love myself and accept myself proudly. But I didn't come out then at the time because I thought it was not ready to face the challenge and pressure given by the homophobic society. So I waited. Only after I completed my internship, I came out as gay. That's an incredibly powerful story to share. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable about this, this topic that you've, you've lived through and just what tremendous courage I'm thinking as I hear this of what you've had to face outside to find a way through internal acceptance and love. And I'm wondering when you did decide to finally come out, what form did that come in? Did you 
express this to selected people or was it more public and what was the reaction? The first one to know that I'm gay is uh, my grandma. I told her uh, like second years of my university life and she was quite shocked. And she only asked me one question. Are you sure that you can face all the challenges? And I said, yes, but I'm not ready now. So I have to wait a bit. That's all. She never told me another things about my sexual orientation. And the second one was my sister. Uh, she was shocked too and she cried and she asked me, Can't, uh, is there anything that you can do to change it? Because I'm afraid you might get bullied and you might uh, get mocked and you you might be a laughing stock. She told me, uh, but I told her, it's okay. It's not time yet, so I will not come out publicly and I'll wait for the right moment. So uh, she said, it's okay, whatever you are, I'll still love you because you are my brother. And uh, only after I completed my internship, I decided to come out uh, publicly. And that's when I told my mom. My mom also cried and she asked the same thing. Uh, can't you change it? So I said, no. Uh, because in the earlier years of my university life, I even tried to take my life because I feel guilty uh, because the society tell us gays are sinner. Uh, being gay is a punishment that we receive for our uh, evil doings in a past life. This, it's like a, an atonement. We deserve to be discriminated. We deserve to be bullied. And that's what I believed at the time. So I tried to take my life several times and I told my mom about that. And, and her reaction changed suddenly. Okay, please don't do that. Never try it again, try it again because uh, whatever you are, even if you're gay or you're straight, I love you because you are my son, not because you're straight, okay? So, uh, the only thing I am afraid of is uh, you will get bullied in the future if people know about your sexual orientation. If you're sure that you can uh, face challenges and you can endure it, uh, I'm on your side, she said. And after that, I came up publicly by using Facebook. I announced my sexual orientation that I'm gay. So uh, I, th I think that's the right time because I got my degree from medical university and I'm a full-fledged doctor and I can make a living on my own. Uh, so I'm ready to face the challenges. That's when I decided to come, come out. Mm, I see. And as you came out publicly, what reaction did you find from your father and other male members of the family that you referenced? 
growing up might not have had the most open and tolerant attitudes about these things? Mm, my dad and I were not that close because, as I said before, he he was not. Uh, he is not the best dad. <laughs> so I never told him openly about my orientation. But he knew it and he kept silence about it. So I think it's okay. I even introduced my boyfriend to him and uh, he showed no signs of aggression. So mm -hmm. I think it's okay. I see. Yeah. But the society, uh, they were a bit shocked. And but uh, during the last decades, it's becoming more gay-friendly in our society because of the uh, Thai, Thailand BL drama or Chinese BL drama. People are more familiar with gay people and gay culture, so it's not that hard. Uh, but I face uh, certain unfair treatment in my working environment because I moved to Mandalay to follow my partner and I work uh, at a private hospital and the administration's department treated us unfairly because we, we are not allowed to put into the same group and uh, we are not allowed to eat together because they are afraid we might uh, we might not be able to work properly if we are put in the same group group. And for that reason, we have to work separately and our duty hours are like opposite to each other so so that we cannot see each other. That's what they do. And after two years I, I quit that job because I no longer can stand it. Mm, right. And one of the things I'm wondering as I hear this is just the recent history of Myanmar society and the changes it's gone through. Of course, the 2010s were the democratic transition period and it wasn't fully open, but there were more opportunities. And I, uh, there's a, a book, which the title is escaping my mind now. It's a, it's a book on the recent gay culture in, uh, in Myanmar. We'll put it in the, the show notes as I remember it. And this book tracking, um, the, uh, gays in Myanmar society and their acceptance, it referenced how in the democratic transition, a lot, uh, a number of, of, Burmese, the Burmese gay community that had gone into exile for their own safety came back into the country in the 2010s and started to be more open and not just in their lifestyle, but also in advocacy and organization and be trying to, to be somewhat of a presence in society because they felt a little safer. They were just moving baby steps in that direction. So you lived through all this. Uh, you knew that you were gay very young in life before the democratic transition. And then you came of age and became a, a young adult and mature adult as the country was opening up. 
So did you, in front of your eyes, did, did you see or experience any difference in the tolerance, let alone the safety of being gay in Myanmar? Did you see that change at all during those years or, or not? Uh, yeah, it's changed a bit. Uh, because the democratic transition uh, started in 2010, but I only came out in 2017 because it took years to get familiarized. And, and I would say that it's true that it all started after 2010 because that's when we, we are able to use more freely the internet. We have more access to internet because before 2010, it was really hard to know what the other countries on the world are doing and like we are in the dark and we don't know what's going on uh, in the other country, what's going on in the world. And only after 2010, yeah. I would say that's true. Mm, right. I see. So your coming out kind of coincided with a slightly safer, slightly more accepting population than 10 or even five years earlier, let's say. Yeah. Mm, right. That's, um, that's interesting. So, and as far as your partner goes, what was his journey like? Did he have it any any easier for you in coming to accept his identity? No. Uh, he has a harder journey because his family is more like conservative or old-fashioned, I would say. And they deny to accept him even after we came out Uh, so his family knew that he was gay before he met me. He had a relationship before me. Yeah. And his family knew it, but they denied to acknowledge it. They refused it. Hmm. And, uh, he received unfair treatment within the family just for being gay. Uh, and when he met me, he was still thinking that he is a sinner and he deserved to be treated unfairly by the family. It's okay because he's such a shame for the family. He still believe it. So I have to change uh, his way of thinking. And I, I told him, being gay is not a sin. Being gay is a natural thing and you have, uh, you shouldn't be shameful for yourself. It's them who should be shameful because you are their family members and yet they treated you unfairly and like they are loving you because you are straight. If they really love you, they should love you. you what, uh, even if you are gay or you are straight, whatever you are, they should still love you, right? So you have to change your way of thinking so that you could live more freely. I told him and he finally accepted that and, uh, 
uh, only after that he was able to come out of his family's control. <coughs> and his family still force, forces us uh, to be to try to separate us and they forces him to marry a woman. But we are no longer kids, no longer under their control. So we move to an apartment, we rent an apartment and we live, we make a living on our own. Mm, and living in Myanmar society, how open are you able to be just in a public sphere, not among, not in, in behind closed doors or with friends or in places where you feel safe, but just walking down the street, holding hands or traveling and, and booking reservations as you go, or just uh, behaving in a way outside um, wherever you are, whether it's in countryside or vacation or monastery or wherever that is able to be open in terms of people seeing how you are to each other and to what extent if at all have you uh have you not done that and been careful in certain kinds of environments yeah till today they, they will still laugh, laugh at us <laughs> because uh mm, when we hold each other hand and walk, in, walk down the street, people will see us like mm, awkward. I, should I say awkward or like they would laugh behind us. But uh, it's, uh, it's been a lot easier lately. Mm, right. And you mentioned how you grew up in a split household of Karen, um, Christian and, and then Buddhist also with, with two different sides of the family having different religions. Do you identify with one of those religions or both or neither? Mm. I identify myself as Christian. Okay. I took my mom's side. Yeah. Mm. Right. And your partner? Uh, he's a Buddhist. Mm. Right. Great. So that brings us up to the coup one year ago. Uh, learned a bit about your life and your education, your your partner, uh, how Myanmar society was changing at the time. When the coup hit and the protests started right out in the streets uh, several weeks later, one of the things that many were remarking on is just how diverse some of the groups out were, how creative, how funny, how dynamic the groups were. There was even there were even Rohingya groups that were were uh, were identifying themselves as such, which would have been unheard of just several weeks before. And then, of course, there were groups of the LGBTQ community that came out um, dressed in any number of ways with signs identifying themselves as who they were walking with everyone else and this to me seemed kind of landmark to have this community be so open in in who they were and um and and out on the street with everyone else uh, even though these times were very scary and very dark for how the military responded it seemed like a something of a of a spark of light that at least there was a solidarity together or at least appearing to me very far away and not a part of any of these communities what appeared to be a solidarity 
and something of a breakthrough even on a small level. So I'm wondering for you, if you participated in any of those or your your friends did, or even if you just heard about them from afar, what was your response in seeing some segments of these communities be able to um, to dress and uh, identify themselves and walk in groups uh, so so openly in ways that that are not very common in recent history. I did not participate in that group, but I really appreciate them because we we see it as a chance to prove ourselves uh, that we are equal and we are worthy uh, of respect and we can also uh, do right things and it's time to uh, tell the society that we are not different we are uh, also able to do the right things and we also uh, should I say uh, we also despise the military government Uh, it's time to tell the the society that we are one, we are not different. We see it as a chance. So I really appreciate them doing that. And people's, uh, how people see us change a bit after that, I, I believe. How so? How, how did it change? Um, before the coup, uh, even if it's a little bit and uh, even uh, before the coup, it's a, a bit safer. Uh, it became a bit safer for us than before, but it's not to this level. And after the coup, after the we, uh, after we, the LGBT society joined the protest and doing whatever we can, people start to see us. Oh, we are one. They are just different but they are not inferior and they are not cowards because uh, before the coup people used used to describe cowards uh, as gay are you gay why are you so coward they use the term gay as a symbol of weak and wicked and coward and they started to realize that it's not true because we are also brave and we can do the right things and we we know rights from wrong and we are also resisting the military government so we have to stop discriminating them and they start to change in a positive way that's incredible that's really powerful so did you actually hear this kind of conversation going on either either directly or or in an online forum that members of the straight community were actually reevaluating and and revising their prejudice and their their uh, associations uh based on uh this moment of people coming together and they, they, that in real time in front of you you actually saw them begin to change the way they looked at this part of the community and their relation to it did um were were these conversations you were actually a party to yeah, the most often used uh, social media in Myanmar is Facebook. And you can see them a lot on Facebook. And the most obvious thing is the NUG government allowed a gay man to be their minister. 
that's an incredible thing, right? Mm. I think you've heard, heard of him. And the, uh, the Kranji state I'm currently at, they are not that gay friendly because they have so many traditions uh, they have to follow and, and gay thing is not one of the, their culture. And but when we arrived here and we do um, little contributions, and they acknowledge us, and they even avoid using the the word gay in front of us because it might offend us. Uh, so they start to see that oh, being gay is not that bad, and that's the changes I I I've seen so far. Hmm, that's extraordinary. So going back to when the coup happened, can you trace a bit how what you how you and your partner were participating? I know that you're in Kareni State now, you're deep in the jungle. Uh, but bring us back a year and what were you doing those first few weeks and months? I'll have to go back to like two years before the coup. We were planning to study abroad. Uh, especially to UK and the COVID pandemic took place and we have to cancel our plans and then the coup took place. We both came from families with military background. My uncle is a high rank military officer and his brother uh, is a military officer too. But uh, we've never uh, know that we never knew th- how the military mm, violate the human rights in ethnic uh, states. Hmm. We really didn't know that. And when we started to see their violence and their inhumane ways of responding to protests, and we began to realize that we have been lied our whole life that they are fair, they are good. So it was really shocking. And we have to stand for justice, I, I think. So that's why we joined the protest and we support the CDM uh, movement. Because uh, when the health workers participate in CDM, uh, Patients will have, uh, patients will suffer a lot. We knew, we know that. So we try to compensate in a way by helping, uh, by treating them at the charity clinics and by raising funds for them uh, to go to the private hospitals. We tried it various ways, but the SAC, the military, tried to cut off everything we we did. Uh, They raided the charity clinics and arrested the doctors. And they forced the private hospitals not to work with the CDM doctors. So that's when I, mm, that's when I thought our ways will no longer work. So we have to go one step further. So there's nothing I can do much by staying at home. So I have to go somewhere. 
where I will be more effective. And I heard uh, there are many IDB camps across the country who need medical uh, medical care. So I tried to go to Kitchen State, but it didn't work. They said the routes are not safe. Uh, so please wait. And I tried to go to the Chen State, and it's the same. Okay. Uh, so a friend of mine asked me, there was a IDB camp in Korean State with over 2,000 refugees, and, and they need medical care. So can you please help me? And I said, yes. And I had to persuade my boyfriend to come with me because uh, he's not like me. He's not like me. Uh, he used to live in comfort zone, and he's afraid to. He was afraid to um, go out of his comfort zone. So I pursued him, and then he said yes because people need us. So we we got here in June two thousand twenty one. And it's been over seven months that we've been here, that we're here. Wow, that's remarkable. So over seven months, you've been living basically in the jungle with a mobile medical tent, living and caring for the Kareni, is that right? Yes. And how's that experience been? Uh... When you said jungle, it's really a jungle. Hmm. It's not like the rural areas. Uh, it's not like we're living in a village and it's really deep in the jungle because uh, in May 2021, the military launched a long range attack to the village that I, I've, I'm currently with and it hit the church and four people died so they dare not live uh, in a village so they moved deep into the jungle and when i came first came here it's really hard because there's no infrastructure we only have uh toppling rainproof sheets and bamboos and that's all we have so we have to build tents with that and the only water source we can get is rain, rainwater. Mm. Uh, so we have rice, but we have to, mostly all we have was bamboo shoots that we have to eat. Mm. There's hardly any meat. Mm -hmm. So it, it was really uh, like a new experience for me. And we try to set up a camp inside the jungle. And gradually we, right now our, our camp is not that, uh, not that bad. <laughs> we filled with more supplies and it's quite functioning well. Uh, we do not live in a group. We live, 
we set up our tents in over a white area just past because uh, we are afraid that the military would launch again the long-range missile or will perform an airstrike so that in case they do that by dispersing our tents uh, it will lessen the damage so and you told me that just the other day there were airstrikes. So you even in how you're living, you've already faced airstrikes. Is that right? Uh, yeah. But as I said before, our camp area is very large. So they perform the airstrike near the border, not uh, inside the main camp. So that's that's lucky. So how far were you from where the airstrike hit approximately? Mm, I think it's two or three miles. Because mm, our the, camp areas are like about 20 miles. <laughs> that's not far, two or three miles. So what was your experience in seeing that airstrike as close as you were? What what happened? Mm. My reaction was a bit angry. I, I, I would say that uh, to perform an airstrike against his people is really, what, what should I say, cruel or inhumane, or because it cost a lot of money, even to buy a gun. Uh, my reaction was a bit angry because how could a military use airstrike against its own people? I was really shocked. And for the Ukrainian people, it's not uh, it's not the first time that they face such an airstrike because the military performed it again and again over the past months. But it's first time for me. But um. I've been quite familiar with the explosive sounds, so it's not that frightening frightening for me. The only reaction I got was angry. I imagine there's also a certain sense of helplessness that when something is falling from the sky, where where do you possibly go? How do you and it happens so so immediately without warning, without knowing when it's coming that it, it, there's just there just must be a feeling I imagine of of helplessness and uh, and 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 not knowing how to protect oneself and others. Yes, that's the other reason that um, I was angry because we have no ways to counter the airstrike or to shield us to prevent us. Mm, right. And you mentioned that you've become used to explosives. I, I take it to mean that since the coup, you've been used to explosives. I, I don't imagine you would have had any much experience before that. Uh, is that right? Yeah. I've never heard an explosion before the coup. Only after the coup, especially when I came to the Korean state. 
that's when I start to hear the explosive sounds day and night. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have never heard an explosion before the coup. And it was only after I moved to Karini State, that's when I first started to experience an explosion. Because uh, there are battles going on days and nights, and I can I could hear it uh, from my base. So uh, when I first heard the explosion, I was like restless and really afraid, and I couldn't sleep at all. I I worked back and forth, back and forth, and I was really nervous, and I was afraid. When would it uh, fall over me? And I prepared my packages and I just walk around the camp. And after months later, after I've heard so many, I've heard it so many times, uh, I get used to it. Mm. Right. And so this transformation you've gone through, like so many people in Myanmar now, I should say, but it's really quite remarkable. You, until last year, your biggest challenge, I take it, was living as a gay couple in Myanmar and the prejudice faced from that. And you went from that being your biggest challenge to setting up a mobile medical clinic in the jungle among a group of people that uh, come from a different ethnic and linguistic background while explosives are going off almost every day. This is just an unimaginable transformation from one life to another that I think most of our listeners couldn't begin to even understand or contemplate what we would do if we were in that place and, and things had changed so dramatically. Do you ever pause to think about where your life has gone in the past year and how you've gotten here and, and how, how your own day to day has changed or are you just so caught up in the daily life and the necessities you haven't really had time to process uh, how, how drastically things have changed in the past year for you personally? Mm, I really had no idea that the, all this would happen. Uh, I we were not expecting a coup actually. Uh, so even last year when the COVID nineteen took place and we are still planning to go abroad and we're trying to uh, sit for the lab exam and suddenly this happened and. And we were not expecting a coup. And I, I was planning uh, to sit for the PLAP exam last year. And all this happened suddenly. But it's all thanks to the teachings of my mom and my grandma, I think. Uh, they taught me uh, to do whatever I believe is right, no matter how hot the situations are how uh, the odds are. Uh, they always uh, tell me to 
keep doing whatever you believe is right. And please do not keep silent uh, when you see something injustice is going on. That's what they taught me and I applied it to my daily life. So it's not after the coup happened that I chose to do such things because even of, uh, even before the coup, I used to fight against uh, superiors from my job because I never kept silence uh, whenever I see something is not right. So, like I was, mm, uh, what do they call such person? Uh, I don't know the English word for that. They call it Burmese and Guaza. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm, so, I applied that principle to the current situations and the other thoughts that drive me to do it is if not you, if it's not you, there will be no one who will be doing this. So you have to start from yourself. That's uh, what I thought. So if I have to wait for the others to take actions, then what if the old other people's wait like me? There will be no one to stand against, against the military. So that's what I thought. So it, it has to be me who start to take actions. So if all people uh, think like me, uh, the revolution would end more quickly, I think. So that's when I decided to come to the Korean state. Mm, that's quite powerful. So now you and your partner have taken on the responsibility of doing something I assume you've never done before, setting up and establishing a mobile medical clinic in the middle of a combat zone where civilians and IDPs are caught in the conflict and explosives and airstrikes are going on every day. I imagine the supply is also quite challenging. What has your experience been like for the last seven months and the learning curve you've gone through in setting up this mobile med medical clinic in a region that you really have no experience in? Actually, it's uh, quite difficult because uh, uh, the main difficulty is a uh, lack of facility and transportations. Hmm. So it's true there are so many difficulties in doing what I've been doing, but. It wouldn't be possible if I were alone. I always turn to other peoples whenever I face uh, an obstacle, a difficulty, and I over overcome them mm. one by one. I usually never look so far ahead. I only try to uh, solve the problems on daily basis. And the main difficulty here is uh, lack of facility and transportations because all the transportation routes uh, are uh, cut off by the military. We always try to uh, cut off all the connections to get here uh, because they know it's the 
people to find forces who are uh, who are taking care of our security. So they try to cut off whatever supplies we try to uh, carry inside the camp. Mm. And and our mobile clinic has not much facility. You know, some diseases are hard to treat, and there are, some are even uh, hard to diagnose. Hard to be diagnosed. So, and we don't have a tertiary center to refer the patients in case we cannot, uh, in case that are out of our league. Right. Yeah, that's the main problem here. How did you go about that even from the start? You know, you I know you're trained as a doctor, but you've never done anything like going into the remote area you're in and setting up something from scratch with... Uh, in a conflict zone with only the materials you have your you have on hand and the knowledge you have from your training so as you began to take on that mission and and that responsibility how did you even begin to contemplate and to set up uh what would be an effective mobile medical unit in a conflict zone I must say it's all thanks to our seniors because I have like mm, four or five seniors on who live in the city. Uh, so whenever I face a difficulty, I ask them for opinions and that's what guides me. Um, So they've given you some good advice. Yeah, because uh, they are also trained to work in remote areas. Because before they be they be became specialists, they have to take uh, trainings in such areas. So they have experience in that, and I took their advice and. Um, I'll have. Uh, I had to re read a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so at first, there were not. Uh, there were not so many complicated cases in my clinic, but, but as the time uh, goes on, more and more complicated cases uh, are coming to my clinic because all the other clinics in the area are closed or ha had to move because of the battles and uh, we are the only functioning clinics in our area. So more and more complicated cases are coming and especially the COVID cases. So I try to manage and I see what I can do for them and do it according to the resources. Right, right. And 
as you're now responsible for taking care of so many people and people with such a range of serious conditions and you're operating in these kind of impossible situations, you also need to find a way to take care of yourself. You and your partner need to be able to do that because this level of trauma and this level of work, this is something that you also need to stay mentally and physically healthy and balanced. How have you been able to do that? Mm, uh, we quite went uh, into fights several times because uh, we are worn out, and uh, so we sometimes we take a break for like two or three days when we do nothing. So my partner and I went into fights uh, several times over the past seven months because we're not uh, we are worn out. And so we're not patient with uh, each other that much. That's why we've, we fought. And when such things happen, uh, we take a break from our daily activity because we, we are not the only medical persons in our camp. So we have other medical persons like nurses and uh, public health supervisors in our clinic so we take a break for like one or two days or two or three days sometimes and that's how we manage to continue to face the stress here mm. <laughs> right and also for the last seven months you've been living among the Karani people this is an area you haven't been before and i'm not sure how to what extent you knew Karani people before you went out there. What has the experience been like of embedding with a community for as long as you've had? Yeah, I've never been to Karani State before the coup. And I've never seen one. I've never seen a Karani people before. So it was my first time meeting them. And uh they're friendly and not that difficult to communicate with uh the only thing that i uh, the only feeling that i caught from talking to them is regret uh i regret that i never knew so much things were going on inside the current state before the coup and i I really didn't know that. So they have been suffering what we are seeing right now for several decades. So I heard their stories and uh, I feel really sorry for them. What are some of those stories that you heard or perhaps one story that really sticks in your mind? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you might know that there is a hydropower plant in Kruni State called Lopida. So it belongs to the Kruni State. And uh, various uh, cities from the mainland receive its electricity from that hydropower plant. But uh, the Kruni 
both don't. They don't get it. So the power supply lines pass over their head, but they didn't get any benefits from that. And instead, they have to part the tower. Uh, I think it's called tower, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The yeah. the tall pillar to support the power lines. So they they have to guard them without any benefits, and they didn't get any electricity, and they have to stay in the dock, and yet they have to guard the power lines that came from the hydro plant that existed in their their land. And what's worse is there are so many landmines near the base of the tower so that no one could uh, destroy it. The military planted a lot of landmines. And yet they asked the villagers to guard them. And they didn't tell them the exact locations of the landmine. And they forbid them to make a fence around the uh, around the tower those towers the Ukrainian people asked for it please make a fence so that we couldn't uh, so that we don't step on the landmines and the military refused to allow it so uh, there there have been mine blast cases in the past decades and no no one from mainland knew about knew about it and sometimes uh, the military, when the military came and checked the towers, uh, they asked the villagers to kneel before them. Sometimes they beat them, them out. And they were never on the media, on any media, and we didn't know anything about it. Why the Ukrainian people hate the military so much. That's terrible. That's That's just unspeakable and inhumane to hear. What what was your personal reaction when you heard this stories and stories like it? Uh, I was angry and ashamed. I was ashamed of myself because I we were living in the same country and I didn't know about that. And I was really angry, and I'm. Uh, it's became more clear that we have to take down the military or such things will keep uh, happening. So we must put a stop to them. Mm, yeah, I, I just don't know what to say after a story like that. And I'm sure that's just one of many that you've been exposed to of these terrible, inhumane crimes that have been committed for years, for generations that are not just committed, but not known about either. Yeah, and I've seen one by myself last month because um, near our camp there's a village and there there were clashes between the people defend forces and the military last month, and so the military take uh, control over the area, and when they retreat, they planted landmines. In, uh, in the fields. So when they retreat, the, the villagers 
went back to their village and uh, there were two cases so far that they stepped on the landmines planted by the military. They both lost, lost a limb. Were those victims brought to you? Yeah. Uh, I had to go and pick the first victim for myself. And it took like six hours from my clinic to get uh, to a properly equipped uh, hospital. So it's he. He was very lucky that he didn't. He didn't die on the way. Hmm. <laughs> now you mentioned that both you and your partner come from military families. Have you had communication with the members of the family who are in the military and are they still in the military now? Uh, my uncle retired from military years ago, but he's still in that circle. But I cut off uh, all connections with him since the coup started. Since the coup started, and my partner, uh, he sometimes still talk to his relatives. But not uh, not that close anymore. Hmm. Right. I imagine hearing some of the stories and witnessing some of the things that you're doing really has both of you reflecting quite deeply on those family members and their circles as you were growing up that participated in the military and and wondering about them and their activities. Yeah, I think. Uh, there'll be things that we didn't know that uh, they committed the same crimes. That's why I cut off all the connections with my relatives. And for my partner, uh, uh, his military-related relatives is has just entered the military, not that high rank. So he believed that his relatives didn't committed any serious crime till now so we are trying to persuade him to switch over our side mm. but for the safety of the family he was afraid to do so right now you're living in Kareni culture for some time and you'll be there for some time to come i imagine i'm sure those experiences of living among those people is, is changing you and affecting your your own life in, in various ways. With this kind of transformation in yourself of living among the Kareni, if you were to go back or when you are to go back to Mandalay, Yangon, other urban cities among uh, Bamar, uh, living, um, living in those cities, how do you expect you might change given your experience here? Is there something that you think you would do differently or or uh, or engage differently based on your experience of living among the Kareni? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, because uh, I learned that the Kareni people are, what should I say, more realistic. Uh, I must say that they are more realistic than those people who live in the big cities. Because they face the 
bitter truth of um, the military over the decades so they know how to survive in this situation so they are not afraid to lose anything and they can start from scratch uh, in any time so that's uh, what i learned from them and i'm not afraid to lose anything either uh, and it gives me uh i should say more confidence um and looking at you and your partner coming to Kareni and setting up there and, and living there for so long, how has the reception been? I mean, in, in one regard, you're really foreigners in a way. You uh, There's a different language, a different set of customs, an urban countryside, uh, different ethnic background. Uh, and then, of course, um, being a gay couple coming into what is largely a traditional community, I imagine, is something different for them as well. So how has that reception been as you came and settled among them? Uh, yeah, when we first came uh, here, uh, uh, they didn't trust us, and we treat uh, we've been treated differently uh, because hmm, it's quite fair, I think, because uh, there's so much racism happening in our country. Uh, back in the mainland, we see the ethnic people as minority and they are uh, often described as uh, honest but rude and uncivilized people and that's what the what we used to think when we we're back in the mainland and for the Korean people they do not trust us they only trust their own people and they do not trust uh, especially permits. Uh, so we have to work for like for months to get their trust. And right now uh, they are treating us like one of them. And they start to see that not all Burmese people are bad. Not all people from the mainland are wicked and cruel. They start to learn that and I'm really happy to do so. Mm, the different shades of unity you're describing in your story are really remarkable. I mean, you're talking about coming out as gay yourself and then the pride you see of how the gay community can march in solidarity with people on the streets and it's dispelling these age-old discriminations and and making it have uh, making the uh, allowing the, the that community to integrate more into the uh and have a place with an overall myanmar uh, society and then so in that sense you're kind of more of an outsider who's finding a home for perhaps the first time through this this sense of everyone together but then beyond that you then go into a place where uh you are among people who are themselves disadvantaged at the hands of people who look like you and talk like you. And so then you're having to be on the other side of that equation and then they're starting to become comfortable with you. So this, this is just interesting because it's kind of a microcosm of 
the overall unity that's happening across Myanmar now, at least from what it sounds like to me, where all these different and distinct groups, whether they were distinct by lifestyle or ethnicity or region or custom language, whatever, that all these different and distinct groups that haven't had a reason to trust each other before are now finding ways to, and perhaps it's not successful every time, but just from hearing your story, these are some remarkable examples of these divisions starting to be dissolved. Uh, is that something you find as well? Yeah, I have to admit that. Uh, I'm, uh, I must say the coup took all of us together. The, the coup make uh, all the vision to unite as one. So th uh, that's one of the good things that uh, come from the coup, I must say that. I agree. And it's pretty ironic because the military always says that Tamada is the only institution that can unite the people. And in this sense, it's true. The Tamada is the only institution that can unite the people because the sense of <laughs> hatred and solidarity against them is that uh, unfortunately that that does happen. But um, but hopefully it can give us some hope going forward that what we're seeing now is not just an episode of convenience, but is something that will be lasting and that that there will be a place for gay society, gay the gay community in Myanmar society going forward, that there there will be Kareni who can trust some Burmese, at least one Burmese, that they aren't like the rest that have terrorized them, and that there will be consciousness on the part of Burmese that uh, these people have suffered under institutions that I might be a part of, and I didn't know I was, but now I've learned I I, I am part of an, an unjust, inhumane system. And what is my responsibility in tearing that down and building a, a more equitable one for people that don't have my privilege? So this uh, this examination happening in real time is is really is really quite startling and uh, and and promising as well. I hope. Yeah. Because in the face of greater evil, we all have to unite as one. And most of the members uh, of our clinic uh, met only after they get here. They're not friends before this. And right now, we're feeling like we found a family because we've been through so many hardships together. So I, I hope this will last even after the coup and this uh, this kind of uh trust will spread and i think we act as a link between the Korean people and the the burmese people that's beautiful that's that, that's really great uh, not only have you been there in Kareni state meeting so many people in that society and that community and helping them but you've become somewhat of a local celebrity, at least an online celebrity in, in Myanmar for posting what you do, pictures, reflections, and so many people that have, have never met you and might never met you across the country and the diaspora are following you and cheering for you. And if there was ever a time that people would see that uh, a member of the gay community is not... Uh, cowardly or weak or anything else it's now i mean you are living the example of 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 how you are serving and helping in ways that so few people could 
uh, and through the online sharing, people are able to follow along virtually what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, and so I think just the example that you're setting and the ability of the internet to, to share that so that so many people know, I think that itself is breaking down barriers. So I'm wondering, aside from your direct relations in the Karani community, have you, have you had interactions or conversations or online dialogue where uh, people that are just following your story have, that they have also been impressed or, uh, uh, or, or had their mindset changed by your example? I hope so, because I've done interviews uh, with um, other medias and uh, I participated in like two or three uh, talk, online talk. And I saw positive comments uh, under their post. So I hope I could uh, set an example and I could change people's mind. I, I, I hope so. Oh, so that's amazing. I mean, you're, you're changing Karani's mind by being among their community and showing a different side of the Bamar experience. And then back in Bamar society, you're changing those minds by taking a... A, uh, a group that has had certain assumptions and prejudice and showing by your living example how wrong those are. So these are two completely different sets of barriers that you're just by your living example of service are, are hopefully breaking down. Uh, when I first came here uh, in June 2021, uh, there was not, there were not a single case of COVID inside our camp. Uh, but in August 2021, oh, we we found one case, and it uh, we try to cut off the transmission by setting complete lockdown inside the camp. But it didn't work because for some reasons we have to uh, go in and out of the base for security reasons or other reasons, so it didn't work. And the COVID-19 uh, cases rises uh, over 200 cases. So we we set up a COVID center inside our camp and we treated them. And we've seen 10 severe cases so far whose oxygen concentration level uh, fell under 90%. Uh, and we've lost one patient uh, because of the post-COVID-19 complications. So at first, we're, we were able to manage such cases because we have medical supplies and uh, we have oxygen. Uh, but as the battle's uh, going on, uh, the military forces the oxygen plants to shut down and so I couldn't find any place to fill my oxygen to fill the oxygen so I only have concentrators and power generator and the fuel and the prices uh, went skyrocket and I couldn't afford it anymore and I cannot run the power generator for 24-7, so 
we have to give the patients episodically oxygen. And there was a patient who uh, who suffered from post-COVID-19 complication. I believe it was pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary embolism. But I don't have enough medications for him. So I gave, uh, I gave them like one or two weeks and then there's no more medications left and there's no more oxygen and so we have to give up on him and he passed away a week ago and now we have to shut down our COVID center because we no longer have enough oxygen or we no longer have enough medications I'm really sorry as a doctor and a caregiver that must be tremendously difficult to simply not have enough of what's needed to meet the needs of the moment. So the funeral I, I, I was talking about this morning, the funeral I have to attend to is his. It's mm -hmm. uh, seven days after he passed away. So they, they may they hold a ceremony for him so i have to attend it this afternoon mm. right i'm sure we have a number of burmese listening to this both in the country as well as diaspora and i'm sure that many of them have already been following along your journey online what you've posted other interviews but having the chance to speak to them now is there something you would like to say to them about your experience informing them about what you're doing and um uh, having uh, the greater community understand uh what you're seeing and what you're facing is there is there a message you have for them yeah i'd like to say you might have heard about the difficulties and the, the tragedies uh, happening in the ethnic uh, area, but you will never know how it feels until you see it for yourself. Uh, and most of the uh, Burmese people do not accept that there was uh, there is a racism uh, that root inside them. Even I didn't see it, but when I uh, came to the Kroni State, I I began to realize it. The military. Uh, try to install the racism into our generation through the education system. Uh, uh, so we have to try to uh, realize it ourselves and we have to let go of the thoughts that the thoughts that uh, ethnic people are 
less intelligent. Ethnic peoples are rude. Ethnic peoples are funny. Accents are funny. Their traditions are funny. We have to let go of the thoughts, and we will have to start treating them like as equal. And we'll have to give respect to their traditions and their accent and their language. Thanks for that. And now speaking to the foreign community, those outside of Myanmar, Westerners or in other countries who are listening to this, do you have a message for them as well? Is there something you'd like to say to them? Yeah. Uh, I hope. Uh, I I hope and I believe you will continue. You all will continue supporting us, the our spring revolution. And I understand if you could not help us directly, uh, because it's like a political issues. Uh, but I believe and I request you continue support us because uh, we might have done mistakes uh, in the past, but now most of us see our mistakes and we are ready to change. So please give us a chance to change and um, give us uh, give us a chance to walk on the right path. Thank you. That's that's really beautiful. That's that's also very powerful. Uh, looking now at your experience in Kareni society, you know this is something of a different culture. Uh, 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 you're you're a foreigner, an outsider in there, and any time any of us goes into a different kind of community, there's things are different. The customs, the way of relating, the some of the behavior and personalities, and that can be a tremendous learning experience. Uh, how other people see the world, how other people behave. So what have been, as, as you've spent now, as you've mentioned, seven months in, in creating community, that's quite a bit of time. How has it changed you? What are some of the, the beautiful and special parts of Kareni culture that you want to take with you after this? Uh, like I said before, they are straightforward people. And they taught me about one thing. Because back in the uh, cities, uh, we are told that holding guns are dangerous. And so the military never allowed us to have a gun, even with license. But the Kareni people here has a habit of using the what called the to me the gun uh, an old-fashioned gun and they're really peaceful so uh, it teach me that uh, guns are not dangerous only pe people who holding them are dangerous uh, yes because uh, uh, the reason I'm doing this, uh, one reason I, I'm doing this is uh, because of my family's decision to do what you believe is right. And the other thing is uh, I'm trying to build a community safe for the LGBT people because I don't want anyone uh, of the next generation to suffer what I've suffered. So I want uh, the society to see us as equal and we're not weak and we're not uh, wicked. And we also deserve respect 
and that's uh, why I, I was I'm trying uh, this hard to set an example. So I hope uh, it will work well. Yeah, I think you are setting that example. I really do. Uh, I I really think that this is a moment when so many of those old barriers can break down and that so many different people in communities can examine assumptions of all kinds that they've had that they're not proud of and that this could be a moment to get over that and let them go. And I, I truly hope that does happen. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for taking this time with us on Inside Myanmar podcast. I understand this is your first interview in English. I think you did great. So I think that everyone will be able to understand how well you've articulated and communicated your story. It's incredibly inspiring. Uh, I should mention that we have a nonprofit, Better Burma, and that uh, for those listeners that were especially moved and inspired by what you described and who want to support you directly, we encourage any listeners to send a donation through us and with it earmarked for your cause. And we, uh, we will make sure that it gets there to you. Thank you. Thank you for your help. How much longer do you think you might stay on in Kareni? Do you have any idea? Uh, yeah, I plan to stay like at least two years here. And I hope by the time our revolution uh, will reach to some point. <laughs> I hope so too. hope so too. I hope you continue being able to help and support those there as you break down boundaries. And I hope you can, even though I'm a vegetarian, I hope that you can get some meat once in a while. <laughs> Add some meat to the bamboo shoots and rice that you're eating. Yeah, but lately we we've been able to manage uh, to get meat. <laughs> yeah. Mm. How, how about Kareni food? Do you have any favorite Kareni food that you've tried there? Mm. Uh, yeah, but most Kareni foods are spicy. Oh. Yeah, really spicy. But I like that I am getting used to it. Mm, that's great. Do you have any particular yeah. dish you like most? Uh, yeah, uh, it's called um, uh, kongi or I, I don't know, the, the boiled rice. Mm. Mm. Right. Wait, let me check its palate. <laughs> <laughs> I think we pronounce it kongi, C-U-N-G-E. Mm-hmm. You know that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's a bit different from uh, what we eat uh, back in home, hometown. It's a crazy style conky. It's spicy and, and it's like more like a paste than a soup. And it, it has its uh, unique flavor. And I, I like that both. That's great. That's great. I hope I can try it someday. Well, thank you so much for taking the chance to join with us. I know what a burden you're under. You're between 
airstrikes and funerals and the burden of so many depending on your care. And please stay safe. And thanks again so much for your time here. Uh, thank you too for giving me this opportunity uh, to be here. And I'm really glad that I get to talk to um, all the listeners across the world. And I really appreciate all your support and love for us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. As regular listeners are aware, we often remind our audience about our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, at the end of a show. Truth be told, fundraising is hard work, and I can personally attest to the fact that it's really no fun to keep asking for contributions. Yet the situation on the ground in Myanmar is so distressing that we continue to do so on behalf of the Burmese people. What is most helpful at this time are recurring donations, which help alleviate both the stress and time involved in fundraising. If you're able to pledge a certain amount per month, our team can plan around having at least a consistent minimum amount to work with every month. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Acknowledging the equality and basic human rights. Hey, I, 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 I.